So we're going to look at the last 11, or last uh, section of 1 Timothy 6 from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. And so I want to just read that with us, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get into it together. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich of this in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By, profess by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Yes, Lord, let your grace be with us. Bless your word in Jesus' name. So Paul in this context, if you guys were with us last week, Paul in this context is talking about what our attitude should be towards riches, the temptation of riches that, that can be there for us as Jesus followers, or actually for anybody, specifically for Timothy as a man of God, as someone who's doing the work of God. And in the context of warning about this temptation, Paul gives this exhortation to Timothy. In the New Living Translation, it says, hold tightly to eternal life. Now, this is not an exhortation. This is not Paul saying, you need to get saved, Timothy. You need eternal life. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, Paul, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to hold fast to this. I want you to get a grip on this. Like, it's the most important thing. And we've been talking in this book, in this letter, uh, about the priorities of a local church. Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to fix things that are messed up, to reestablish the priorities of the local believers there. And it, it's, it's fitting that the last priority he would bring up is this priority of experiencing eternal life. Now, you might, be, you might have a wrong idea about what eternal life is. You might just be thinking eternal life uh, is based only on what the scripture says in Romans uh, 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. It's definitely that. Eternal life is a free gift of God. But this is how Jesus defined eternal life. Listen. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, and it's important for us to understand right off the, the get-go that when Paul says in, a, in Romans chapter 6 that he does this comparison between wages and gift, between death and life, that we know that there is this dichotomy, there is this line that is to be crossed. 
That, that we naturally are in a place when we live for ourselves, which we naturally do, when we do live our lives as if God wasn't real or that we just make a God of our own imagination. When we do this, we get payment for it. And the payment is death. It's death to relationships. It's death between us and God. It's death that lasts forever. That's what we get. We get what we deserve. We're paid for our rebellion. We're paid for our willful ignorance against who God is and what he wants to do. But eternal life is not just this kind of, this really long time that we spend in heaven. In fact, it's really not even just about heaven. It's less about a place and more about a person, the person of God, the Godhead, our God who's three in one. It's more about knowing him, having a relationship with him, experiencing what that, how that relationship transforms our lives. This is what eternal life is. So in a very real sense, listen, in a very real sense, when you receive Christ as Savior, when you recognize, yes, I deserve death, the wages of death, but because Jesus died for me and has come back from the dead, I want to receive him as Lord. I want to receive his Life. When you do that, you have passed from death to life, but you've also began eternal life. Because it's not so much about how long it lasts, the quantity, but it is about the quality, about the life that, that God has, that God is, and how he gives that life to us. And so what Paul's saying here to Timothy is he's wanting to, in these sort of final exhortations to say, Timothy, listen, you need to hold on to eternal life. Let your life be about this, you and God forever and eternity. Let that be what impacts you. So we're going to talk about what does it mean? How do we experience eternal life? How does that work? And the first thing we're going to see in verses 11 and 12 is that the gift of eternal life requires a response. It's a, we have to respond to it. God calls us to respond to it. So what does he say in verse 11 and the first part of verse 12? He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, referring to the love of money, referring to the things that, that he talked about earlier in the chapter. Flee these things and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Notice that he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Now, I want you to notice right off the bat the strong verbs that Paul uses. Flee these things. Not just casually sashay away, but run. Just bolt out of there. Pursue. The word for pursue is a word that means to, to long for something, to go after it with passion. And then he says, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, he's talking about Timothy. Look, there's an intentional action that needs to be here. But he says in, in, in describing what the pursuit is, he talks about, he uses language, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And all these words, we could spend a lot of time getting into these words, we're not going to. But all these words have to do with how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. In other words, what he's talking about here is he's reminding Timothy that there's a relational response to the eternal life that God gives you. It's meant to have, first and foremost, an impact on relationships. When, when Jesus saves us, when we put our faith in Jesus and his finished work at the cross and his, his, his resurrection, he gives us this eternal life. We stand before God possessing this life, being justified, rendered innocent to God. But in possessing of that, we're called to respond to that. And the first place of response is our relationships. It's meant to change our relationships. And this makes sense. 
It makes sense because the Bible re reveals God to be a, a three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, a God who has always been relationship, enjoyed relationship, created people for relationship. And so it makes sense that when pe people understand their brokenness and when God says, I want to save you from that brokenness, that that brokenness is going to be expressed in relationship and the saving is going to be expressed in relationship. This is what's behind the commandments to love. John, who's called the beloved disciple, he wrote this. He says, beloved, that's you and me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Our three-in-one God is love. So Paul's reminding Timothy of a relational response. Timothy, let this be the goal. Now, Timothy's job wasn't easy kind of replanting these house churches in Ephesus, appointing elders, raising up leadership, making sure that people knew what was false doctrine and what was good doctrine. And, and, the, and the thing that, it, it, these kinds of situations, I'm sure, made relationships tense. And so Paul's reminding Timothy, Timothy, listen, I know this is not an easy job, but hold fast to the eternal life that God's given you. Let that work itself out. Let the, the, the power that raised Christ from the dead work in you to change you. Let the love of God that he freely gives to you in Christ, let that change your motivations and empower you to love him and love others in the same way. That's our relational response. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the kind of first of, of the sister churches that we've been a part of, they, they had on, on their kind of value statement in their church. They, they, one of the things they used to say was kind of classic. A lot of Calvary's kind of stole this. It said, in effect, that uh, we believe the worship of God should be fruitful. Therefore, we look to manifest the love of God in our lives. And without the love of God, we have no right to call ourselves Christians. Does that seem a bit harsh? A bit clearly drawn? No, it's just biblical. The God who is love changes us and calls us to respond to him and to one another in love. This is why love is called the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to produce it in us. And so Paul's reminding Timothy of this. But also he reminds Timothy of what I, I think is probably his baptism. It could be uh, his calling in the ministry. Some people believe that. But I think it's probably his baptism. And most commentators, I think, believe, uh, agree with that. He says in verse 12, notice, he says, Take hold of the, etern the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, so what many traditions still do now and what they did definitely in the early church was when someone was going to be baptized, part of the, the ceremony was them confessing a creed about Christ. They would say what was true about Jesus. They would confess a, 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 a creed or a belief that, that all the church held about who Jesus was and what he had done. They would profess their faith in Jesus. They would confess that he is their Lord and Savior. And there was a whole sort of formal thing that they did. It wasn't a casual thing. It was an important thing. Now, in a sense, what's happening here is, is Paul's reminding Timothy, Timothy, remember you made this public response. You publicly declare Jesus as Lord. That's what baptism is. 
Now, we are happy if when people come to know Jesus, if they want to be baptized like straight away or in private. We don't make a huge deal about that. But we encourage people who come to faith in Jesus and are ready to be baptized to be baptized publicly. One, because we want to celebrate together. But two, it's meant to be a public declaration. That's part of the purpose of it. That's the way the church has always used it. That we would publicly say, Lord, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. I want to be identified with you as my Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? Because these two things, uh, a relational response and a public response, are the two things that we struggle most with as Christians, right? Relational response. Yeah, we're loving to our friends and stuff, but you, man, someone treats us bad, forget it. We're, 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 we're not so loving anymore. Because our love is often just something human, something based on what we have horizontally instead of what we've received vertically, what we continually receive vertically from God himself. And what about public response? It's very easy for us, isn't it, isn't it for us to just kind of be quiet, not say anything about uh, being a Christian, especially with people we don't know very well. We kind of hide our faith. I wonder how many of us, when we knew we were going to be baptized, those of us who have been baptized, made a big deal about it and said, hey, I'm getting baptized. Would you like to come? Some of you probably did, and some of you maybe didn't. But the sense of, of excitement and pride's the wrong word, I think. But, you know, just this, like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of my Lord. I want to publicly declare I'm a Jesus follower. That's hard for us, isn't it? We know we're going to be the odd ones out when we do this. And yet this is the response that the Holy Spirit produces in us when he gives us the gift of eternal life. He teaches us this. This is what Paul's exhorting Timothy to. There's this great verse in the book of Romans that you've probably heard quoted a gazillion times if you've been in church for any length of time. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see what's going on here? Your heart and your mouth need to agree. You can have in your heart the sense of, yes, I like what I see in Jesus. I, I, I like the standard he sets about love and about forgiveness. I, I want that in my life. I want that to affect my relationships. And you can have your heart beginning to be dealt with by God, and yet you're going, but I'm not too sure if I want to actually identify as a Jesus follower. Or maybe the kind of person that says, yeah, I want to say, I love Jesus. He's the best. I hate that guy. We really don't want to be changed and learn how to forgive. But the Holy Spirit, listen, when the Holy Spirit gives us life because of Jesus, he brings these changes to where our profession, our response is shown in our relationships and it's made publicly. This is an ongoing thing. Paul's reminding Timothy of this. Like, Timothy, listen, don't forget what you've already confessed. Don't forget what you already know. Pursue this. Let this be the priority. So that's the first thing. That this gift of eternal life requires a response. Here's the second thing. The giver of eternal life becomes our desire. See, as we are experiencing eternal life, God changes our hearts so that he's the one that we want. Now, that sounds kind of, well, duh, of course. But let's be honest. How many things do our hearts want? I'll tell you what. When I was driving back for the second time to the church office today... To get things that I forgot. What I wanted more than anything was this day to be over. I just want it to be over, Lord. I'm, I, I'm so frustrated right now. 
This is why I wanted to go. Teresa kindly said, let me go. And I said, no, no, I really want to go because I wanted to scream my prayers in the car to say, God, I don't like this. I want something else. But the greatest thing God could give me in that moment was, and always is, himself. I'm here. I'm still in control. I, I know exactly what I'm doing with all this chaos. I, I know who's going to uh, tune in late and needs to hear the song sung. I, I, I know who, who, uh, who's going to come late and needs to hear the song sung. I, I know what I'm doing. I know exactly how I'm going to use your failures for the good of others. I know exactly what I'm doing. This is what God does. Now, now here's the thing. God, as he does this, he, he, as he puts us through these or allows us to go through these difficulties, he's doing so so that all the other things that we think we want that are so important get put aside into their proper place under God so that we want God more than anything else. Listen to the way Paul exhorts Timothy. Look at the first part of verse 13. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God, notice, who gives life to all things. Now again, these are things that Paul knows, or I'm sorry, that Timothy knows. And Paul's not chastising Timothy. He's just saying, Timothy, don't forget this good stuff. He, he's in this beginning, he's basically, Paul's honoring God as the giver of all good things. Do we believe that? That every good thing in our life is a gift from God, every relationship. This is one of the first things that begins to change in our hearts when God gives us eternal life, when we put our faith in Jesus, is that we begin to see, man, God, everything that's good in my life is from you. It's funny, it's, it's amazing how when I, got, when I became a Christian at 18 years old, when I was converted, how I could look back and go, wow, God, all this stuff that happened has been, it's been good in my life is from you. And, and as I began to mature, I began to see all this bad stuff that's happened in my life is, is also was meant for my good. That was from your good hand for me. God knows not only how to give us every good gift, but how to work all things together for our good. Paul's honoring God that way in front of Timothy to remind him. But again, look at verse 13. He says, and he says, I charge you, uh, and of Christ Jesus, who is in, uh, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now, this is interesting. Because we're going to see here that Paul's going to call Timothy to be motivated by Jesus' return. This is not like, look out, Timothy, Jesus is coming back, and you've got to get ready. No, Timothy wanted the Lord to come back. This is, Timothy, don't worry, Jesus is coming back soon, and his reward is with him. Don't worry, be motivated by this, be encouraged by this. I'm charging you, trust that he's going to do this. And in bringing this charge, the first thing he, he reminds Timothy of is that Jesus also made a good confession. You made a good confession, Timothy, at your baptism, that you believe Jesus is Lord. Guess what Jesus made? What kind of confession Jesus made when he was with Pontius Pilate? Now, if this is new to you, if you're new to the Bible, you might not know the story very well. You might remember the name Pontius Pilate. But you can look this up later in John chapters 18 and 19. We're going to just reference a couple of verses that will be on the screen. But it's a really amazing story. Because we have in, in the section where Jesus is going to say the things that we're going to look at, he has just been uh, forsaken by his disciples, beaten almost to death by the Roman legions. He's lost tons of blood, and he's standing before Pontius Pilate, who, from a human standpoint, holds his life in his hand. This is the scene. The man Jesus stands in this place. And as he's there before Pontius Pilate, 
Pontius asks him, are you a king? And here's how Jesus answers. Listen, John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is saying, here's, here's the truth. Here's what Jesus confessed. That, that, that Timothy needs to be motivated by. That Jesus has a kingdom. He's God's chosen king. And it didn't start on this planet. It started from eternity past. It's, it's, it's who he is. It's all part of God's plan that he will reign over this earth. Now it's true that the kingdom has begun because Jesus has already come. But the kingdom is also not yet because he hasn't come back. But look what else he says. Again, in John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus says, You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus, here is Jesus. This, Jesus the man. All right, we know, we, we, we know biblically that Jesus is God the Son. We know that. But this is also Jesus the man. And Jesus the man is saying this. He's saying, listen, in his beaten state... He's saying to Pontius Pilate, I'm the authoritative standard of truth. That's who I am. That's what he's confessing. Later on in chapter 19, when Pilate's saying, hey man, you need to cooperate with me. I'm trying to set you free, basically. Here's how Jesus responds to Pilate. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Do you know why this is important? Why is Paul saying, don't forget Jesus and this good confession he made before Pilate? Because it's this same Jesus who's going to come back. Look at verse 14. In verse 14 it says, to, here's one of exhorting Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, that's God, will display at the proper time. Now, there's debate about when he talks about um, keeping this command. Is it the command to fight the good fight? Is it the, just the gospel itself? Is it the command to, to hold on to eternal life? There's debate. In one sense, it doesn't matter because all those things would be included. What does matter is Paul saying, Timothy, be motivated because this Jesus who made this great confession, he's coming back soon. Amen. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 1, this is when Jesus, after Jesus has been crucified, he then was resurrected three days later. He then walked the earth for 40 days and, and, and showed himself to, to many witnesses. And here he's about to ascend to heaven. Here's what happens, or right when he ascends to heaven. It says, after this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching this, while the disciples watched. And they could no longer see him. So he... he he, they're just watching Jesus ascend into the clouds. The resurrected Christ, he ascends straight up into heaven, and the clouds cover, they can't see. And these angels come and say, what are you staring up in the heaven? Here's what the angels say to the disciples. Listen. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Jesus, listen, listen. Paul's saying to, to Timothy, Timothy, do you want Jesus? Because he's coming back. Or if, you're, if you're wanting to live for the Lord, if you're hungry for, for Jesus, guess what? He's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. And it was soon for them. It's even sooner for us. You see, the same Jesus is going to return at the appointed time. This is what's meant to motivate Timothy to keep pushing, pushing forward. God, I want to see you. 
it's not going to be on the screen, but if you, if you want to look up Philippians chapter 3 later on, and you see Paul talking about he, his goal in life, the one thing that he did. He says, here's the one thing I do. I press on to know Jesus. I look forward to that upward call, that time when the Lord comes back and I meet him in the air. I look forward to that above all things. I want to see him above all things. You see, when, when God gives us eternal life, he becomes our desire. It's him that we want to know. I asked you guys that question about uh, if you could pick a moment or a season, you know, what would, uh, that could last forever, which would be that moment? And we had some great answers because we're quite spiritual in our groups. We had some really great answers. But, but it's, it's a funny thing to think about, isn't it? Because if, when we think about it, even when we think about the best answers that we can think about, the best things we can have, even those things are like, yeah, those are good, but even that we don't want to last forever. We want maybe what's behind that to last forever, but not that. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that eternity, God has placed eternity in our hearts. We know that we're made for something greater than just the here and now. In fact, what we're made for is not just something, but someone. To know the God who gives eternal life, the giver eternal life, to know him. And Paul's saying, Timothy, he's coming back. Jesus, who provided that for you, he's coming back soon. Let that be your motivation. Now look at verse 15 again. Because what happens in verse 15 after Paul says, listen, God's going to send Jesus at the proper time to return. He then starts just kind of bursting into worship. In fact, some of your Bible versions may have this section kind of off on its own in a kind of a smaller indentation. Because it's like Paul's just busting out into worship. And he says, he who is God, who is blessed, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal glory. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, you know, again this week in preparation, I thought, what, how does this work? And how would this be encouraging to Timothy? Timothy, Jesus is going to come back. You're going to see him, but you're never going to see God. It seems like that's what he's saying, but that's actually not exactly what he's saying. Paul's point here and kind of just overflowing with worship is to say, Timothy, he's excited. He's excited about seeing the Lord because he knows that Jesus, listen, Jesus is the one who makes the uh, unseen God seen. Remember what Jesus says in John 14? He says to, to Thomas, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the final and fullest revelation of who God is. He's why we can know we can approach the Father. How we're going to experience the Father forever is because we're in Jesus. Now, now this is something that there is, a, a, again, a, a bit of a mystery. I, I acknowledge that. But, but wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't you expect that when we're talking about God, there's things that we can't get our head around. Would you actually expect to be able to kind of see God and say, yep, that's how God is. He's just like this. No, we do that. Romans chapter 1 says this is what we do by nature. We say, God is like this. And we get it wrong every time. 
And we tend to say God is like this because we want to control God. We want God to be the genie in our pocket. But the creator of the universe, as Paul says here, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, uh, he alone has immortality, which means he alone gives immortality. And listen, you know what we're promised in Christ? Immortality. Unapproachable light. We can't approach God because he's so holy, lest we die. You know what happens? He wraps us in Christ, who is the light of the world, so that we can approach him. I know we've never seen him, but as we said before, we can see Jesus, and seeing Jesus, we can see the Father. The point is, is Paul's worshiping the unseen God as he's been revealed in Jesus. And this is what we see. God shows himself, the Holy Testament, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Listen to this, Acts chapter 2. This is the Apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by saying, listen, you humans, you've made your choice. You Jews, you've made your choice. You've made your choice to say, we don't want this man to rule over us. And God said, that's fine. Part of my plan is that when you have him crucified, that's going to pay for your sin. God's completely in control of the whole spiel. And what, what Paul's wanting Timothy to see is, Timothy, this is the God you can know. This is the God that you want to know. This is the God that you're going to soon see face-to-face in the person of Jesus Christ. Be motivated by that. Want him. I heard uh, John Piper say once, if you could go to heaven and not have Jesus, would you still want to be there? Mm. You see, the thing is, is that, that we sometimes make such a big deal about hell. And don't, don't get me wrong, hell's a big deal. It's a real place. It's the eternal place. Jesus was really clear about that. We make such a big deal about how we forget about heaven or really not the place, but the person that makes heaven heavenly. It's this great God who's made everything. We've been made for him. This is why we're restless until we trust in him. This is why we're anxious and unfulfilled until we know him. This is why even when we know him and we begin to do our own things and live our our own plans, we get frustrated. Why? Because we're not made for that. We're not redeemed for that. We're redeemed to know him. Eternal life, the giver of eternal life, becomes our desire. That's why he saves us. Can't give us anything better than himself. Now, quickly, lastly, The last thing we see in this last section is where Paul began again to address the rich as the whole context here, or the temptations of riches at least. He now is going to do what what I'm going to call, he's going to say that the quality of eternal life, it actually changes our lifestyle. when, when, When we want God more than anything else, that changes how we live. We've already seen how the response is relational, but this gets bigger than that. The things that we think are so desirable those things change, and it, so we change how we relate to those things. 
So the first thing we see, verse 17, Paul calls the rich to humbly enjoy God's generosity. Look what he says. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. In other words, don't have a false confidence in the money that you have. Very easy for us to do. Trust what's in the bank instead of trusting the God who's given it to us. Nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We talked about that last week, didn't we? But on God, notice, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, this is something that's really important for us to understand. One of the things that we can make a mistake of, the, the, pro, the more popular mistake in the Western church today is what we call the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to never have any problems. It's the prosperity gospel. It's not accurate. It's not what we see in Jesus or hear from Jesus. But there's another false gospel that was more popular like in the Middle Ages. We might call it the poverty gospel. That I'm only, listen, I'm only faithfully following God if I give up everything material. Material stuff is bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul says here clearly, listen, exhort the rich to be humble, to not trust in their riches, but to trust in God, because God has given them this to enjoy. That part of why God has blessed them is enjoyment. Listen to this. There's this great picture in Nehemiah chapter 8 where God's people, they've returned to Jerusalem. They haven't been exposed to God's word in ages. And as they clean out the temple and they rebuild things, what happens? They rediscover the law of God and they begin to read. The priests read to all the people the law of God. And what happens? People hear the law of God for the first time and they're completely cut to the heart. Oh my goodness. We've been blowing it. We've been messing up so badly. We have not done at all what God wants for us. Because they didn't know any better. They were, they were confused. They were ignorant of what God had said. The covenant that God had made with them. But l listen. This is what the priests say to them. No, no, no. They say, go enjoy the good food and sweet drink. Give some food and drinks to those, give some food and drinks to those who, who didn't prepare any food. Today is a special day to our God. Don't be sad because the joy of the Lord will make you strong. This is amazing. Do you realize it's God who invented celebration? Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Luke that when one sinner goes to repent, uh, uh, comes to repentance, there's great joy in the presence of God. Or in the presence of the angels, I think is what it says. That the angels see God get excited when one person repents. They see an expression of joy in the Godhead. And the angels follow suit. Because they like to party. And they like to celebrate. And so does God. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's important for us to learn to enjoy the good things that God gives us. It's important for us. This is why it's important for us to give thanks when we get those things. This is why it's important for us to give thanks for our food. Even if it's not the, your favorite meal of the week. To take them and say, God, thank you. This is, good. this is a good provision. We want to stop and give you thanks for it. It's a good thing to do. I'm talking about some weird legalistic way. I'm talking about in a way that just we turn our affections toward the God who gives us generously all things to enjoy. But Paul also calls the rich to display God's generosity. Look what happens in verse 18. Paul says to him, They are to do good, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so God says, listen, you that are rich, here's what you need to do. You need to be willing to give that away. You need to be willing to show that your heart is about eternity, the eternal life that you have in Christ. Now, you might notice uh, on, the, on the notes or on the outline that uh, the, I put the rich in inverted commas. I did that for a reason. As I mentioned last week, and we don't want to forget this, we really don't. This is not about us feeling guilty, but it is about us being sober. We are wealthy compared to 90% of the population of the planet. We're, we're doing better than we think. And I know that's hard to say or hard to receive in the days of COVID where people are worried about if they're going to have a job in, in the coming months. It is, and those are serious times. We want to help one another with this. But this is the whole, the whole thing that we need to recognize. That God says, listen, if I've given you stuff, it's not just so you can fill up your bank account or just so that you can be comfortable. Yes, enjoy. Yes, be wise for the future. Yes, all those things are important, but display God's generosity. Show that eternal life has changed your life. It's interesting that, that, that Scripture, the New Testament, does not command giving in a certain way. It doesn't. But it, it expects giving in a certain way. It expects giving to be generous, proportionate, and motivated by our generous God who sent Christ for us to give us eternal life. Interesting. Lastly, quickly, Paul says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted in you. And it's almost everyone agrees that the, the idea of the deposit is the stewardship of the gospel. You've been given the gospel to share out to other people. Guard that, Timothy. Treasure that, Timothy. That's God's gospel. This is important. Two reasons. Two things that Jesus said. One, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. Do not lay up treasures, uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Notice he doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will be. He says where your treasure, your heart will be. You see, the reason God calls us to give in a certain way is for us to, so that we can turn our affections toward things that are forever. This is why Paul usually didn't take money for his ministry. He said to the Corinthians, I, I'm happily spend and be spent for your good. Why? Was it because he was just trying to prove a point to them? No, it was more than that. He was trying to say, listen, I'm about eternity. I, I've learned to be content. This is what he's calling us to. But also, listen to this. Jesus says in Mark chapter 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what would a man give in return for his soul? You see, we, we tend to value things that are so here and now that we forget about what God's given us in eternal life. And here's the irony. When we take hold of eternal life, when we say, God, the priority is for us to live for you forever, that you've given us this quality of life in knowing you that's going to last forever, when we hold on to that, you know what happens? The here and now is more enjoyable. I'm not saying it's easier, but it's more enjoyable. 
You can find joy in the midst. I was screaming at God about this this morning. As I was driving back one of the times from the, from the church, saying, God, I'm just so frustrated. How am I supposed to kill this old joy? And I was reminded, because he hasn't changed. He's still in control. And he knows what he's doing. Wow, what a, what a great thing. What a better thing. So much better to have God in the midst of chaos than just try to have to not have chaos. Now, we're going to take some time to talk this in, and then I'll come back up and we'll pray. So here's some discussion questions, okay? For your groups, and if you're not in that group, you can move into a group as long as you keep your social distance. Um, here's the things I want you to talk about. Do you sometimes feel like God is more of a demanding taker than a generous giver? And if so, why do you think that is? Why, why, do, why, do, our hearts, why do our hearts go that way? I said if so, but let's be honest, we've all probably felt this way. So why? Why is it that we start feeling that God's a demanding taker more than a generous giver? Think about that. Encourage each other in this to think about this, okay? And then after that, talk about why do you think people get so nervous and awkward about publicly identifying as Jesus followers? Why is that so weird for people? Well, what's the reasons behind it? We mentioned uh, one that you might remember, but think about what, what some of those reasons might be. Why do we feel awkward about publicly identifying as Jesus followers? And then lastly, this is really one question. Would, would others assume that you're a Jesus follower by how you treat your family or friends, uh, by how you treat your coworkers or fellow students, by how you treat those who mistreat you? Why or why not? So it is one question, though, which is just, how you treat other people, but I wanted to give those categories so you think, you don't just think about your friends. Okay? Would people know you're a Jesus follower?